Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we're going to be reviewing two new releases, one of them having just come out this weekend. Uh, that will be David Fincher's The Killer that we'll talk about later. But first up, we're going to talk about Wes Anderson's film anthology that was released on Netflix uh, based on some Roll Doll short stories, The Wonderful World of Henry Sugar and three others, which we'll get into each one of those when we get to them. It's kind of known collectively as Henry Sugar. Uh, so the premise to the Henry Sugar short is uh, Henry is a wealthy man and decides to take on an extraordinary challenge. He wants to master an extraordinary skill in order to cheat at gambling games, which I like that description because it doesn't reveal too much. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the specifics of this movie, Ariana, what are your feelings on Wes Anderson as a filmmaker? Wes Anderson, even though I know he has a master of skills, unfortunately has this problem with me that I'm never really excited to see any of his films. I'm grateful to watch them. I think they just don't really pull at my heartstrings. I would say I'm have the opposite reaction. I kind of went through, I would call it like the Wes Anderson roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, because Rushmore came out the year before or the year I started college, I believe. And so I saw Rushmore. I saw uh, Royal Tenenbaums in the theater four times. Uh, I saw, I think I saw all of his movies in the theater up until maybe like the fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh and there was a period around like the Darjeeling Limited that was kind of, or I'd say like uh, the Aqu- Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu, which was yeah. his follow up to Royal Tenenbaums. That was where it kind of dipped for me because I felt there was a coldness there. Yeah. And then Darjeeling Limited, I just didn't really gel with it. And then from there, it would be little, you know, sometimes I'd like it. Sometimes I wouldn't. I think Moonrise Kingdom was really good. I like that one. Uh but it wasn't until recently, I would say the French Dispatch was a which is a movie that seems to have divided people. I really liked it for one real main reason. He decided to go with basically making a film anthology, yeah, and experimenting with style. Now there's going to be people who just kind of have a surface level understanding of Wes Anderson and go, "Well, it looks the same as all his other shit, right?" And it's, I think you do have to be someone that's watched a lot of Wes Anderson movies to really key in on where he's experimenting. But with The French Dispatch, each short film had so many differing stylistic choices that it really, it interested me a lot. I was, I thought it was very well done and well executed. And I never felt like any of his ideas stayed around for too long because it was an anthology we moved on to the next one there are some things i don't like about the french dispatch Mm -hmm. but overall i thought this is a structure that he works really well with and then this year he will have had uh two big releases so we had his netflix short films but also asteroid city and how did you and that was something i reviewed on the blog popcult.blog check it out (laughs) uh but we have not talked about it here on the podcast so what were your feelings on asteroid city uh, I liked it. I really liked how the child actors were portrayed because they felt more natural than the way that they've been portrayed before. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like 
like the three girls that oh, the like triplets the triplets they felt very authentic this and also they still felt like they fit into that world yeah they felt like real kids but they also felt like they were part of the wes anderson universe yes. um it felt like a film of sorts of a collaboration that he has with his daughter who seems to be like a huge influence on him now which is kind of nice to to like see and know that like he is sort of trying to become a little bit more inclusive a little bit more um diverse in his cast well he mentioned it was on uh there's a youtube channel where one of their regular features is they'll have like a director and actor walk through a video store i think it's based in paris Mm -hmm. and i remember one segment from that where he praised the anime neon genesis evangelion which he watched with his daughter and he was like i think that's going to be a religion one day like in the future i think that's what it's (laughs) And which has intrigued me enough that I'm thinking, like, in 2024, sitting down and trying to watch Neon Genesis Evangelion. I mean, I'm not a big anime fan, but him saying that made me go, okay, so he's someone who probably isn't a big anime fan, and he saw something in it, so maybe I can look at it and I'll see something, too. Uh, I would say I found Asteroid City to be one of his more emotionally rewarding films Yeah, with the Jason Schwartzman character's arc. Like it's a, I found it to be very moving. And at the time, one of the things I keyed in on is I was like, I think this is a film about what grieving is like for a neurodivergent person, particularly like an autistic person who maybe isn't, their emotions don't sit at the surface. The emotions are kind of down deep. Mm -hmm. And so you're watching the, this character process grief in a way that doesn't feel like grief. Yeah, but it is, and by the end of the movie, he's able to have that kind of emotional moment. Well, yeah, in his way, he almost breaks the whole like scenes. Like he comes out to be like like an actor. Yeah, and he's just like, "Am I playing the role right?" And the guy was like, "You're, you know, the director is telling him, no, you're playing the role exactly the way you need to play the role.'" He's like, "What do you mean about it?" But it's also the fact that the actor is processing the death of his own lover. And not wanting to include it into this. And the explanation is like, you have to feel what you're feeling. Well, and that's another element you've mentioned that I think is strongly present in his work. And it's always been there a little bit. He's always liked to throw narrators in. He's always liked to have framing devices. But I think his films now, he's I think he's really mastered the art of that. And the Henry Sugar short films, I think, are a great showcase of how well he can use a narrator and still deliver a satisfying story. Uh, In this movie, they're based on the stories of Roald Dahl. And so uh, Rafe Fiennes plays Roald Dahl in all of the shorts. Some he's in more than others, but he pops up in all of them. And they've kind of recreated the uh, little woodshed behind uh, Dahl's house where he would go and do his writing. And so that's part of the framing device. Uh, so we're going to get into talking about Henry Sugar itself, that short film. It clocks in in about th- uh, 40 minutes. Um, I thought it breezed by. I'd never felt like it really dragged. No. Uh, and I want to say overall, I think Wes Anderson might be the best uh, film anthology director I've ever seen. Because <laughs> I'm trying to think of other film anthologies where every short satisfied me in this way. And I've never watched an anthology where that happened. And this was the first time where every single one... I was like, that was a really good story, and it was told really well, and I was engaged in it. Uh, so in the Henry Sugar story, we have Dahl telling us the story that he's written. 
And then within that story, you have Benedict Cumberbatch playing Sugar, who finds a book on a shelf, which is written by a doctor played by Dev Patel, who's telling the story of Imdad Khan, a patient who came to him in India, played by Ben Kingsley. Then eventually he goes to Imdad Khan, and Khan tells the story of how he developed the ability to see without his eyes. And so it becomes this... uh, I don't know what you would call it, but this kind of stair-step structure of going deeper into a story, and then we move our way back out by the end of it. Uh, What were your feelings on Henry Sugar specifically? It's the longest of the shorts. I thought it was probably the best of the shorts. It's one that like came out strong, but this does not discount the rest of them. I think it's just the most memorable between all of them. Um, the rest of them might just blur out a little bit. Maybe well, we're gonna talk about Ratcatcher might be like I little... for me the Swan. I really like the Swan, but we'll talk about them more. Yeah, yeah. So Henry Sugar, what was it you liked about this that made it stand out for you? I think the acting is very good. I think there's some. It's like it does a Dave. Uh, like De- Dave Patel was like Dev Patel. Dev Patel was just. You were waiting for the moment that he would work with Anderson and the way that he just delivers the lines, no flinching. It feels almost seamless as if they got this all in one take. And despite the fact that Richard Ayoade has disappointed me when it comes to talking about LGBTQ rights in Turf Island. Well, defending uh, Graham Linham, the Irish nutjob who decided to like implode his own life because he doesn't like trans people or feels threatened yeah um, but uh, but yeah it's yeah i found iowati was not that great i felt iowati just fit in the uh, like in the whole thing kind of a wes anderson character yeah and anyway yeah but it was this interesting thing where like his voice was not like high pitched the way that he's used to delivering it like they told him to tone it down, focus on the camera, do what you're asked, and that's that's it. Well, Dev Patel, particularly, because we saw him in Armando Iannucci's David Copperfield adaptation back, I think, in 2020. Which I like looking back on it, I really like that film. And it's also where he's narrating, there is this uh overarching structure that frames the film, yeah, but it's also more whimsical yeah. in a way. Like this one, it's more like, oh, this is very, but the I would say the film is very whimsical, yeah, it's the the, the delivery is different, yeah, and but that. it's Anderson has a certain acting style, and I would say this acting style is different than what we've seen before. Before, people might refer it to it as a sort of monotone neutrality. This to me felt more like a snappy Howard Hawks movie, like bringing up baby where it was, it's someone who's talking who they need to get the information out and they don't have a lot of time to do that. And so they're talking at a clip. They're not talking so fast that you can't understand them, but they are encouraging you to keep up. Yeah. And I I feel like Dev Patel is a really great leading man that like mainstream big budget movies have just completely slept on. I don't feel like they've slept on it. It feels like he is more selective. As Maybe that's what it is. Because I know like Slumdog Millionaire was his big movie. Remember, like, and then he kind of pulled back after that. Like, well, like Green Knight. Like when he came, oh, like, either, yeah. Like, that movie, then he had the other. Like he had so many movies at the same year. And it's like he takes a pause. And I wouldn't be surprised if like there's going to be another year where he has a ton of movies. And he just takes a break. But I mean, I hope that. And I've seen a lot of people online saying Wes Anderson needs to keep working with Dev Patel. Like, this is a really good match. 
It was. I love the fact that, like, in the film, when Dave Patel's character, Dev Patel, Dev Patel, Dave Patel is a guy who lives in like Long Island. Yeah, <laughs> Dave, uh, Dev. Um, he goes to the circus, and I, I love the fact he was not the only Indian. Per- in fact, it was like a group of Indian people with him watching the whole circus act. And the way that you identify very clearly is he's wearing all white, but he's still wearing like the traditional like Indian clothing outside of work, and the lighting on him is so good yeah the the way this was shot is like watching candy yeah that's what i felt like it was that's the jungle diorama sequence because i looked that up i was i I was like is this digital and i looked it up that was in camera they were dioramas that were made by this dioramist that then they layered and then set up so they could wheel them out to the side so they go out of frame. And it gives you the sense that you're journeying deeper and deeper into the jungle. It was, it's one of those film like magic tricks that is done so perfectly. Speaking of magic tricks, the levitation- Was so great. They they take, it's like a- uh, A box. I don't know what you call it, but there's like a, it's like a apple crate or something. And they painted it so it does like a trompe l'oeil thing, that kind of French camouflage where it's an optical illusion that makes it blend in with the background. So you see them put the box down So and you see them sit on it. But as soon as they're sitting on the box, it looks like they're floating in the air. And so what I loved about that is Anderson is embracing the intentional artificiality of his worlds yeah he isn't trying to ground these worlds in reality so you'll see like when somebody's driving in a car you'll see the below the screen that's projecting the traffic going by yeah and he's not trying to hide it and you'll see stagehands handing actors props from off screen which is like the actual actors and there's some stagehands and so it's this i think what he's trying to do is point out to the audience that films can take you anywhere, but part of that is you have to agree to go there. Yeah. And so what I'm going to do to help you in that is I'm going to make sure that you see what's real and what's not, but you're going to get so caught up in the story, it's not going to matter to you Mm -hmm. because you're going to be so invested in what's happening. Uh, And so, they, yeah, they have this whole series of collide like telescoping kind of stories that then snap back on each other and we haven't even talked about benedict cumberbatch as henry sugar who for the first half of the short film really is not in much of it he kind of takes up the second half of the short film uh what did you think of his performance as henry sugar i thought he was good i am not a cumberbatch fan i find him very boring in most things mm-hmm. i loved him in this movie i thought he and Anderson, once again, kind of like Dev Patel, there is just something about the screen presence of the actor and Anderson's style that it's just like perfect synchronicity. Like it just works. This is somebody who understands what Anderson's going for and is able to deliver it in a way that still makes it feel like it's from the actor. It's not just a director telling them exactly what to do kind of a thing. Uh, And I think it's a... It was a really like upbeat story. Yeah. So I mean, and I'm usually not someone who likes happy ending stuff, but this genuinely had like a happy ending. I think it was also just 
showing you that like yes he started it for greedy reasons only to realize like he had focused so hard on something and it was the joy of accomplishing it that he was like I don't want the money anymore I just want to be able to to do this and to give back to people which was a huge difference of the character from the beginning well because the point is sort of uh if you dedicate yourself to something with so much passion, but then you only use it to better your own life, you've kind of wasted all that time. Yeah. That when you have developed a skill, use the skill to help others sort of a thing. Uh, so we're going to talk about the other three shorts. Each of them clocks in around 17 minutes. And I would say that Anderson p did a good job in picking stories that each have their own tone. Yeah. So something like the rat catcher is very comedic. Yes grotesquely comedic then you have something like the swan which is very uh sentimental and uh moving at the end and then you have poison which is really has a sense of tension in it like you re really ratchets it up so which of those three would you like to talk about first let's go with the rat uh the rat catcher because it's like it it's stuck in my brain right now okay why do you think that one in particular is stuck in your brain I really loved when it was the scene where like the rat catcher and a rat that he brought out are face to face with one another. The shift that they did in order to convey that where it was supposed to be like the guy that owns the petrol station suddenly is the rat and they show him like inserting his teeth. Oh, I that's just, Rupert Friend plays yes. him, yeah. Well, but, I'd say, like, I, but it's not. I wasn't. Was that the name of the guy? He was like a little younger. That he put this. He put the teeth in to act like the rat. He wasn't the rat catcher himself. Rupert Friend. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the rat catcher short. It's in an English village. A reporter and a mechanic listen to a rat catcher explain his clever plan to outwit his prey. Uh, one of the things I want to point out is, I've never read these short stories, but from what I'm seeing. People are pointing out that Anderson has barely changed a word of the original text in these. And so that's why the writers are credited as Roald Dahl and Wes Anderson on them all, because he's just kind of like editing for time, mm -hmm. but he's keeping as much of the text as he could possibly put on the screen. Uh, and one of the things I liked that he did was he would take Dahl's description. So in the case of the rat man played by Ray Fiennes in this, how Dahl describes him as having very like rodent like features. So in the short film, Anderson has the makeup people give Rafe Fines these prominent buck teeth that come to a point. His ears are, are pointed in a way. The way his hair is slicked back kind of looks like a rat. And so it was just this very fun little like visual like touch. Like he turned his head to show his teeth, like his ears, or like he tilted his head up in order to show the mouth, uh, uh, like his mouth. Like it was indicators that you would have probably seen if you were a kid watching a theater play about a story that maybe your teacher told you in the past and having the narrator out loud. And it was, it was fun. Like that's the one thing I could get, uh, like I want to give it. Uh, and it was this one, you could see Anderson really going for the comedy here. Yeah. Because what you have is the rat man is such an awkward, grotesque figure and was it Ayoade as the editor? Is he the one narrating? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, this is like, as much as I, you know, detest some of Ayoade's views that he, or people that he supported, essentially. Uh, 
I will say he, I think he did a good job in this short being like the central voice of the short film. Yeah, because it wasn't, it did not depend on him being funny. It depended on him delivering the lines with a certain tone and allowing everyone else to do the expressions necessary. There's sort of like a, I don't know how you describe, but like a sort of knowingness that the editor has as he's remarking about the rat man, like where he's not necessarily judging the rat man, but he's certainly aware of how grotesque this figure is and how appalled they are at the things that the rat man does. Uh, And I'm trying to remember what is the incident? Oh, it's, they lay out the poison around the hay bale and none of the poison gets eaten. And that, I love how that's the moment the rat man feels that he has been uh, embarrassed in front of these strangers, that he was so confident he was going to get rid of the vermin. And then the way he follows up in order, like, it does feel like someone who is doesn't understand social cues at all because the things he does to impress them with his mastery of rats is so vile. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite part was when the editor said when the rat man's like talking about catching them and he's like, so you have to be, you have to become a rat. And like, he was like, I said that without thinking and he's like immediately regretting it. But then the rat catcher's like, exactly. And he's just like, oh. oh. And it's, I don't know if I've ever seen Rafe finds Also, I was, I was like a, kind of a problematic guy because he's come out to, lightly defend jk rowling like and it's and it's neither he or iowati have been very passionate in their defenses but it is that kind of passive they're my friend yeah where it's like well you know what if my friend was supporting something i thought was reprehensible at most i would just not say anything and move on with my life (laughs) um but like fines is someone who i wouldn't necessarily say is a hilarious actor though i believe he was in um hale or what was it it was that last coen brothers film mm-hmm. about the movie studio in hollywood oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i forgot the which uh, i mean there's a reason why i can't remember it it was not one of their best films like it was an okay, like the thing is like had it been new directors we would have been praising it but it was the hail caesar yeah. and i believe he shares the scene with uh alden elden reich i think is how you pronounce that guy's name were but that it were uh, <laughs> and then finds as the guy who's trying to like correct his vernacular he's the director yes uh and that was uh i think the first time i was really like oh ray finds is kind of a funny guy like that was pretty funny uh and so seeing him here makes me go i think he should do more comedies because he is very funny yeah uh and then so that was the rat catcher it's short so i don't want to spoil too much uh, I'd like to talk about the swan next because I really liked the swan. And it basically, I mean, some other people appear in it, but the majority of it is Rupert Friend. Yeah. Because he's the narrator. Uh, and the premise of it is just simply a small, brilliant boy is tormented by two large, idiotic bullies. And so Rupert Friend plays the narrator and he is explaining uh to the audience uh a story of these two boys in a small english town who one of them got a rifle as a present they go out and they start shooting at birds there's another little boy that they often pick on in their community who is out 
bird, bird watching. watching. Yeah, that's what it was. And they just begin to torment torment him, and that culminates in an act of just horribleness that they do to a swan in a nearby pond in front of the boy. Uh, what did you think of the swan? I thought it was very well done. Um, it it is a film that I would a short film that I would be interested to see uh, see the response of a child towards because it is a story intended more for children. Of all the three, it did feel like the one that was like you could have a kid watch this. I mean, it's going to be sad. Yeah, but I think it's more wanting to know what the response of it could, if they were engaged in it because it is only seventeen minutes. But, like, the visuals are more something that if you are a person that likes French New Wave or, like, Anderson style, you would be intrigued in. I wonder how, what a, a child's response, would they like it or not? Well, it's, it yeah, there's it's just an interesting sequence near the beginning as Rupert Friend's character is walking face camera but backwards and along, like, a row of hedges. Yeah. And there's, like, a... Stagehands popping out of hidden doors in the hedges to like set up props to hand him things. Yeah. And it was just such a great sequence. I love the train sequence because that's when he reveals that he is the boy that's in the story. Yeah. So then he assumes the boy's place on the train tracks. And the way he goes through all the stuff that he did to ensure that when the train did come, his body would be safe from harm. Yeah. And it's just, there's like a something about the way Anderson just details and shoots the process of that that engaged me a lot. And it's a sequence that you wouldn't think a guy laying on train tracks describing in past tense, how he dug his head into the gravel and how he bent his feet would yeah, be that. Yeah. But like, it's, I think it's the combination of dolls vernacular, like the way he writes. So he's not just describing it to you. He's describing it to you in a way that is using very evocative language. Yeah. So it almost gives it more of like a texture to the scene where it's like you really are feeling the gravel at the back of his head just in the way that he describes it. Uh, and the ending of this one, I think, was the most was the saddest of them all. And I don't want to go into too many. I want to spoil what happens at the end. It's also the ending that I think is open to the most interpretation as to what that means. Mm -hmm. Uh, how did you feel about the ending without really specifying what happened? Uh, I mean, like, the ending is a little blurry because at that point, the edible really did hit. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to be honest. <laughs> it was just like, what's happening? <laughs> um, but I was trying to go with the uplifting one, but you were like, when I asked you, you were just like, this happened. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it. The ending has multiple interpretations. Well, especially because it, when he says that he is, he was that little boy. Yeah, and, and you're like, like, wait a minute. So what happened to the little boy? And it leaves it open-ended where you're like, did the little boy die? But the little boy couldn't die because you said you're the little boy. Yeah. And it that one, I think, had me the most intrigued to actually sit down and read Doll's short stories. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, okay. And I know there was a period of time where there was apparently a horror anthology series based on the writings of Roald Dahl because he wrote a lot of like creepy, weird stories. Yeah. Then I think it aired in like the BBC or in Britain. I don't know if it was on the BBC or ITV. Uh, and I've heard mixed things about the production quality of the show. Yeah. But it has always intrigued me to go like, what did he write for adults? Because what he wrote for kids is pretty dark. 
yeah, and again, this is Rupert uh, Friend. Did Friend. I mean, he's uh, he was an asteroid city, but you and he was like a parent of one of the students. Yes, he didn't I have a very. I think he was one of the cowboys that like was part of the band. Okay, yeah, it just he didn't have a very prominent role. I in think asteroid like city. he filmed this between Asteroid City. I would. We'd it wouldn't have surprise to me at yeah. all. But like, I found he was fantastic in this short. Yeah, the, his voices that he does. He's so good in the shorts. It made me like happy to see him because the only thing I remember seeing him in is in Homeland. And I was just oh, like, Oh, I remember <laughs> Death of Stalin. He plays Stalin's son and he's hilarious yeah. in that movie. So yeah, he is an actor where I'm like, I hope he gets more comedic roles and maybe I need to seek out work that he's done that just slipped me by. Yeah. But yeah, his unlike Homeland was propaganda. <laughs> yeah, Homeland. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. What a <laughs> fucked up show that was. Uh but yeah, he's so like, I guess it would be like Midlands accents. I'm not as yeah. well versed in all of the regional he accents. He seemed like probably very relaxed in this setting. Yeah, it felt like he knew who these people were and how to speak like them. Yeah. Uh, and so the last one uh, is Poison. And we see Dev Patel and Benedict Cumberbatch and Ray Fiennes in this. Uh, the premise of this is when a poisonous snake slithers onto an Englishman's stomach in India, his associate and a doctor race to save him. So what did you think of Poison? I thought Poison was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Patel was great in that. I like the the different, the the subtle differences between the doctor character and this character. You might yeah. not pick it up. On but the there series. is, there is. There is, um... And mostly Cumberbatch is just laying on a bed. (laughs) But he does a great job of playing someone who is in mortal terror for their life, but in a position where they can't really react to what's happening. I think it was great when he was losing his patience once the doctor shows up. I think that was the part that really got to me like... I thought it was funny because it was just... Yeah, and it's... This one, Anderson shows a real strong handling of tension... Because that's all this story is, is it's just ratcheting tension up until a release at the end. Yeah. And so with every new development that happens, it just adds to the tension that started when uh, Patel's character comes in and he finds out his friend who has this book laying on his stomach claims that there is a poisonous snake underneath it. And if he gets bitten, it's the kind of snake that you'll die. Like you're just not going to get help. Uh and then I thought Kingsley did a good job as the doctor who shows up yeah. because the way he is so calm in front of Cumberbatch. And then when he and Patel are in private, he's like, I have no idea if this will work. He's probably going to die. I don't know. Uh, and so that where they're pumping up Cumberbatch so that he's like not freaking out. But anytime they are able to have an aside, they're having really strong doubts if he's going to make it through this. Yeah. Uh, and once again, like the way it was shot, it's essentially like two rooms. It's the bedroom where he's sleeping. And then there's like a kitchen that they'll like excuse themselves to. Uh, one thing to talk about all these films is the way Anderson uses setting, which also plays into the uh, intentional artifice. Yeah. And I think it's he's realized being on location is not all it's cracked up to be in some instances because there's a lot of other elements you have to deal with. Uh and then also, if you're telling stories within stories, 
you need to be able to move locations in a very fluid way. Mm-hmm. And before in something like the Grand Budapest Hotel, he just goes on location, like the opening where the girl goes to the author's grave in Germany. And then we cut to like the author who's writing the story in a house. And then we just cut to the hotel. Yeah. And that's, I think he started to realize, oh, when you cut, it's signaling sort of an end of a sequence. But what if you wanted to keep the momentum of the story going and not cut from location to location? How would you accomplish that? And that would be by building artificial locations. Yeah. So then in camera, you can do if somebody was watching a stage play uh, and just pull the background away and have another background there. And and that way the audience understands we're in a new location, but there's been no break in the story. We haven't had to cut to anything. And it's also, I think, a harder feat to pull off because it's all in camera. Yeah. And so I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if he's hiding cuts in certain places. But it's seamless if he is. Yeah. Because for a lot of these films, especially the 17 minute ones, for like something like The Swan, it almost feels like a single take movie where it's just like we turn the camera on, the actress recites their monologue, and it's over. But then during that, all kinds of things happen. I liked his incorporation of stop motion animation. Yes. With the rat and the rat catcher. Yeah. In the swan, I love whenever he uses it for the boy when he's up in the tree being looked at from a distance because he's like, well, you know, it's going to be kind of hard to go build a tree, put a kid on it. Instead, we just have these stop motion animators. They can just do a boy in a tree for us. Uh, And once again, that's another like we know it's not really the boy, but because the story is so uh, engrossing, it doesn't matter to us. Our suspension of disbelief is in effect and we don't care. Uh. Would you recommend someone who isn't necessarily a huge Wes Anderson fan watch these short films? I think I would because the idea of it following is there. It it's not that long, so you could watch it as if it was intentionally made as a mini series. And the longest one is going to be what close to fifty minutes. The rest forty, are like forty minutes, and then like. All the, the others rest are 17. 17 minutes, yeah. so it won't occupy too much of your time. Um, it is unfortunately, if, if I were to rate this in like accumulation, it would not be. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing that really emotionally sticks to me. But having said that, when I think back to the delivery of like the actors, when I think about the oh like the amount of time that must have been in order to stage everything the way that you know very well like in the, in the swan everything had to be coordinated so it meant like once he hit this beat you hand him over this he grabs that like same with the catch oh uh, like the rat catcher so it's one of those that you start to then start thinking more about how much work was put into this versus what we see on our day-to-day basis on screen that could be easily done through digital effects through which is still work but we were watching i think it was we'll talk about the killer and there's like digital fire in there and shit like digital blood and digital fire always take me out and i understand why they're used because if you have you know blood packets go off and then you have to cut for whatever reason it's a lot of time to reset same thing with fire once you set something on fire 
you kind of have to go with whatever happens. Well, I think it's also the fact that there is a richness of color in Anderson's work that is stimulating to the eye without feeling as if you're being overwhelmed yes. as you would be with a Marvel movie or just even flipping through TikTok when there's too much sound, too much like noise in order to get you to watch one thing. It's it's as if he was like saying as if he was like, "All right, I want to make something for kids again that adults can uh, enjoy." Okay. And because it's in like, I'm not saying that kids programming or movies don't have high quality. I think a lot of children's media now does not respect the intelligence of children. Yes. And it's something that like, we also have to be into the thought, like, especially if you're going to make it a family film kind of thing, you want the parent to be engaged. So later on questions can be asked to the children versus going you know what this is a boring tidbit my kid's laughing but i'm going to check on my phone so if your kid like recounts something to you you're going to be like "Uh uh-huh like lying to them that you heard the whole thing but it's not true it feels more well made and it's just something that you have to like applaud because it's sort of like he did two things in one year which is surprising yeah with two different production companies i would say that for me at this point wes anderson uh i think i just appreciate how stylized he is because so much uh popular mainstream media lacks style and feels boring as hell to me and so it's refreshing to have someone who has a very strong bold point of view and is able to execute it so well time and time again uh I remember in college, I joked that like Wes Anderson is to indie art house people what Michael Bay is to like uh, frat brothers, mm. where it's like it's there's the director who has this bold style and you just don't really care about if everything's like, oh, am I moved? And it's like, eh, well, sometimes I'm moved by an Anderson film, but not all the time. But one thing I'm always impressed and I always feel like. It's the closest I've gotten to feeling like looking at a storybook when I was a little kid. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels. Like there's a certain texture, there's a certain feel, like you even expect a certain smell to come through. You feel like you're exploring something. Yeah, and I think it's, it kind of like, it can be so disappointing that there aren't any other American directors that are like this. And I say specifically American because I think after we- He's from Texas, so yeah. Like- we were doing like Agnes uh like Varda, Varda. Yeah. after watching her all of her work we didn't watch all of her work well most of like the top tier work yeah I just felt upset that we didn't have anything like that in the states like truly upset because it's like like a female director a female director who had that specific of a point of view yes and even like amongst the men i don't feel like there are you have martin scorsese but even then it seems like scorsese did yeah i wouldn't say scorsese operates in the same way that an anderson or like you think of like stanley kubrick had a very distinct like cynical style or even david fincher who we're about to talk about he has a style yeah it just feels like they all work in a vacuum and well, there's sort of like a Hollywood blandness that has to yeah, be in so many movies. Like, I would be like so excited if Anderson later on like talks about bringing in like having like mentees and stuff like that, which I've 
That's I don't know if we'll ever see that. <laughs> I wish that they did, like, in comparison to like other, uh, like other like directors from other countries that will app like talk about working in community. I feel like American cinema lost that around the 1960s, like 1970s. Well, I think what happened was, and this is coming from a place of someone who has certainly not read enough on it. Uh, part of the French New Wave was the development of the auteur theory that you know a filmmaker who has a b profound, bold vision and everyone in the crew of the film production and the cast is there to help him realize his vision. Yeah. So you think of someone like a Fellini or you think of someone like a Jacques Demy where they have a very distinct thing. But I even think those directors would not be on board with this auteur theory because they would go, well, I have a, I owe a lot to the people that do are doing the production design of the movie. Like yeah. I gave them my ideas, but I could not build these things myself. But I think American, especially film American film buffs, interpreted that through this sort of hyper individualistic lens of America, right? Yeah. So it's oh, the director is sort of a god king of his movie. And I have a huge problem with that. At the end of the day, like, but I I think what's refreshing is the directors they'll often point to as being like that. When you listen to those directors talk, they don't believe they're the god kings of their movies. They believe they're part of a collaboration. Yeah. Uh, and so I think so often certain directors, let's say a Scorsese or an Anderson, gets unfairly maligned by people who haven't seen their work because of the gatekeeping film bro types who color people's uh, minds about what the these directors' work is. When the big spoiler here is, yeah, the film bros don't get it. Like the film bros who thought that Fight Club meant a certain thing did not understand what Fight Club was about. Yeah. And that's just kind of perpetuated, especially in the 21st century of people who've kind of in the same way you have people make their identity about the MCU. You're having people kind of make their identity about the Criterion collection or something. Yeah. I mean, we have been lucky enough that right now the new generation is looking at past media. Yes. And, and actually talking about the fact that they're talking along the lines of what the creator actually wanted it to be like Sopranos on how. They're just like, no, this is about a man who has a really bad relationship with uh, with his mother and women to begin with. This is not an, a like. Once well, about capitalism and about capitalism, capitalism destroys you. Toxic masculinity is that they're actually seeing it for what it is versus. Well, what we're trying to say is I think most Americans are not media literate yeah. in that they can look at a piece of art and understand how to analyze it. And I would say I was not media literate until I went to college and took a class on literary criticism. And that was just kind of a stepping stone to media literacy. And I still have massive gaps in my media literacy, but I get enjoyment from learning how to see art in different ways because then things that seem very simple on the surface illuminate themselves to you and you start to discover new things that you initially didn't know we're there yeah. and i think anderson's work has kind of gotten that label of it's just what we see on the surface and he is a very bold stylist but i do think there's a humanity in his work it's just a humanity from a perspective from someone who seeing him in interviews and having read more about autism i'm like yeah i think this guy is autistic and his fixation is kind of like film. yeah film especially like film from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, that period. And he just loves the aesthetic of it in the same way that you might have someone who loves Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and decorates their whole bedroom that way. Yeah, but I think it's also, it's, again, the reason that I'm just like, 
there is something very soothing about his work. It's that you're not being bombarded with sound, with color, with all the or you are. in the background. You are, like, but it's in a way that feels I guess cozy, I guess would be a yeah, way to describe yeah, it. It feels like someone's taking you by the hand and going and like describing everything that's around them and yep. telling you a story, but it's also sort of like in a in a good way like they want you to participate in this story they want you yeah. to get like it would be like look at the, this color by the way that reminds me of blah blah blah, blah. you're being directly addressed yes so you're being invited you're being invited into the movie exactly yeah uh so yeah i would say if you have netflix you're already paying for it so you might as well check it out mm-hmm. uh it's really good uh i think anderson is working in a peak in his career right now and i'm just really interested to see what does he do next? And I'm hoping that he continues to experiment with style and, and do something new and interesting. Solitary, cold, methodical, and unencumbered by scruples or regrets, a killer waits in the shadows, watching for his next target. Yet, the longer he waits, the more he thinks he's losing his mind, if not his cool. This is the latest film from David Fincher, also released and distributed by Netflix. Uh, So, Ariana, uh, before we get into The Killer specifically, what are your feelings on David Fincher as a director? I think he does good work. That's it? That's all you got? (laughs) That's all I got. I mean, I just, I don't have a lot of feelings towards this movie right now. There's, he's a director that I have varied opinions on. I would say there are some of his works that are some of my favorite movies of all time. I've told you many times that Zodiac is a comfort movie for me. It was the movie I watched as we were crossing the Atlantic Ocean to move here. It, I, I think I've seen that movie like half a dozen times and it never gets old to me. Uh, and I, th- I've tried to think about like what about it do I like and I think it's when you're watching a Fincher movie you're watching a movie made by someone who has taken so much time to think about this movie and how he's going to execute every part of it so that when you're watching it everything is just rolling on smoothly there's never any bumps in the road for me it's it's a complete experience made by someone who has confidence in their work. Now, different people have different tastes, so your reception to the piece may not be positive. But I don't think you can ever doubt that like Fincher is not a meticulous filmmaker. Mm. Uh, now, what are your thoughts about this movie? I, in retrospect, it is kind of a boring film. It is... There's nothing really that interesting about it. What you're watching is, had this been in the hands of another director, I don't think I would have been able to to swallow the whole thing fully. I think it would have just been like, why the fuck are we watching this had it been someone else? Because it's like, it's so well shot, right? You know, the shots are very clean. The lighting is great. The acting is good. Color grading. Color grading is amazing. But it is it is a boring film at the end of the day. If I'm going to look back on it, it's not a film that I'm going to recommend people to watch. 
Uh, I think you are completely wrong. <laughs> the, uh, the glee on your face. Because I have anticipated this, because this is a take a lot of people are having about this movie. And I think it speaks to the sort of social ADHD that's been conditioned into people to feel very impatient about movies, especially if you're dealing with a movie about someone who commits violence, right? A hitman. Yeah. We have a certain expectation. And I think our brains have been fucked up because what people were expecting when they saw this was David Fincher's John Wick. Yes. And I don't like the John Wick movies. I've only ever seen the first one, and that was enough for me. And I have seen the Nobody film with Bob Odenkirk that was clearly influenced by John Wick. Uh, and a host of other things that have this sort of hyperkinetic violence or thing. Masculine. Yeah. I think I think you are right in that the killer is a pretty like boilerplate pulp kind of like paperback novel kind of story. You're right. Yeah. Uh and that a lot of it is Fincher's stylistics. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's some things going on structurally and thematically that as we were talking about before with Wes Anderson. A lot of Americans are not very media literate, and it's going right over their heads and not getting what's going on. I mean, I know that at the beginning of the film, he kind of gives you a warning. He's saying that the job that he does is if you cannot deal with boredom, you can't do the job that he does. But I think more so than that, it is there's an emphasis that the killer, that's the main character, we don't get his name, makes about to do his job correctly what he has to do. And a big part of that is he has to get his heart rate down. He has to stay calm. Emotions get in the way of him doing what he's supposed to do because emotions cause him to doubt. They cause him to second guess. They cause him to start thinking about the person that the gun is aimed at. And he can't do that in order to do his job well. It's not a film that is designed to make any sort of moral judgment about him. It is a, an, it is a film that is observing him from a distance. It's a film that I think is about David Fincher in a lot of ways. I think if you look at a lot of his work, it lacks a lot of emotion. I think Benjamin Button is probably the closest he's ever done to make like a heartwarming movie. Yeah, I always forget that's his. Yeah, and it's not one of his better ones. Uh, it's a film about someone who is so hyper fixated on their job that they have developed neuroses as a result of it. I think the killer is a very mentally unwell person. And he's not mentally unwell in the way we kind of expect based on the way media has shown mentally unwell people as these sort of explosive personalities. The killer is the opposite. He's so held back that I think he's kind of lost touch with what it means to be a human being. Because when you look at his world, he has this woman that he's in a relationship with, but we really don't understand his relationship with her. And I don't think that's a, an oversight. I think that's intentional. I think the reason he goes out for revenge after she's harmed is because he loves her. And that's his only way of knowing how to express it is to mm -hmm. commit violence. Because, like, I mean, the guy's life is subsumed in violence. The home he owns... All of his possessions, where he lives is all predicated on the fact of what he does for his job is that he yeah. kills people. Uh, and so I just I think there's a banality to the movie that I appreciated. 
I think we get too many hyperkinetic, over-stylized action movies that to me it was refreshing to see something that was very like serene almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also argue that I think structurally this is an anthology movie. Okay. Uh, it's convince me, Harris. Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, I'm going to say one of the first vibes I got from it when they started doing the chapter headings. I immediately thought, oh, this reminds me of a video game. And if you look at the end of every sequence, there is what you would call like a boss sequence. The end of the first sequence is the failed assassination attempt. The end of the second sequence is the taxi cab driver. Mm -hmm. The end of the next sequence is the brute. Or no, the end of the next sequence is um, Hodges, the lawyer, and his secretary, Dolores. The end of the next sequence is the brute. The end of the next sequence is the expert. The end of the next sequence is... Uh, the actor. And so each section feels like a complete story. Like you could take the brute sequence and I would not need to see anything that happened before that. And I would have an understanding of what's going on here. There's not a lot of dialogue spoken, but I would understand, okay, these guys are involved in like organized crime in some way. This one guy is sneaking into the other guy's house to kill him for some reason. You don't really need to know the details to understand that sequence. Now, you could say, well, I'm not very emotionally invested in that. And I'm like, okay, I don't think Fincher movies, in the same way like for Anderson movies, often don't emotionally invest me. Fincher movies for me are always about that kind of the craft and the way he chooses to execute the film and how dedicated he is to just making every frame of the film feel so precise and look so good. Mm-hmm. I would also say I'm not like a Fincher film bro. I probably need to go back at some point and rewatch Fight Club because it's been a long time. It, I was turned off by the movie for the same reason a lot of people who maybe even haven't seen it have been turned off is because of the way other people have talked about it. Uh, but I found The Killer to be... It had a vibe of like a 1970s character study movie. In the 70s, they would make a movie about an assassin. We're thinking about something like The Long Goodbye uh, by Altman. Tonally different, but thematically similar in that we're going to take a story where you have certain expectations as an audience as to how this plays out. And we are going to completely subvert every expectation you have almost to a frustrating degree but on purpose because the director is trying to communicate that this story can be told in different ways. You've just become so used to it being told in this one way here. I'm going to show you that it can be done this way. I think it's a film that had it been broken off into a mini series. I might've appreciated more after hearing you talk about it just to give it space to breathe between the sections. Um, you did mention Fight Club, and I did feel there was a lot of similarities. A lot of people are saying there's this, some themes connecting. Yeah, because it, like, although Fight Club is more, like, there's more, uh, like, stimulus when you're watching it, right? Like, there's more cuts, yeah. there's more dialogue, there's more quippiness. This one, you're just engaging mostly with the killer and his thoughts, and the very few times that he has a conversation with someone else. Um, it's also this interesting thing that, which is something I do appreciate, we don't get his backstory. We we get a sense of him being like, he was a law student, and then 
the something lo- happened. Lo- the lawyer told him, "Don't be a law student." Yeah, and I don't know what that ter- in turn led him into the path to have like his handler to be the lawyer. Um, it is this moment when, for example, he deals with the expert and she starts asking him, like, do you ever like look for information as to who it is that you're killing? Um, because she's like, This was just a job, and now you're making it personal. And he's like, Well, I know not to look information because of blah blah blah. And she's like, That's the same thing for me. Like, she is basically trying to explain to him that they are the same creature, but it's like it's the un- way they execute their jobs is different. Yeah. And how she had no control as to what happened to his romantic partner because he wasn't home during the time. Um, it's it's also just, it's something that like why I say, okay, you might need a, to break it, like for someone else like me to break it down and watch it in a different way, to have those breathing moments to actually appreciate some of it because it's, he's delivering everything with so much coldness and it's just also allowing you to know like the rest of his life is operating in this coldness like you don't have this moment when you're watching an action film where it's like i'm gonna be looking over my shoulder and just like think about the final shot where he's sitting out on the deck and we can see the beach he's there with uh magdala one of the things that struck me was how cold that scene feels, but it's like, well, he's with the woman he loves that he did all this for yet. There's still a coldness. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think you're meant to realize, Oh, he loves her. He just doesn't know how to show her that he loves her like other he than her coffee. He goes and kills these yeah, people. And it's sort of like to her, that love is valid and good. Right. So like, yeah, she kind of understands him in a way that we in the audience can't. Yeah. Especially because when there's that conversation with her and him in the hospital, he's telling her like, don't talk, you need your energy. And she's telling him, you would have been so proud. I didn't talk, even though I was afraid I was going to. So this means this is someone who knows what he does Mm -hmm. and is not going to let anyone like get in the way of that, despite the fact that her life was in danger and her brother doesn't know what he does because he was like, whatever you're in, he's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's never going to happen again. So it's this idea that most likely he retired after this, but also he gets called out at some point. I forgot who it was. It was either the lawyer or the uh, actor. Uh, like I think the expert being like you probably have so much fucking money that you don't have to do this anymore so why are you here like you could just fucking disappear well, and now think about that as this is David Fincher yeah like, why, you, you don't have to make any of these movies why are you doing this and I, th- and I think it's Fincher kind of trying to figure out why he feels a need to keep doing this yeah because Which is like, that is a more interesting way but it's also it makes you kind of like sad for him well i mean yeah it's i think he is a very emotionally cold person based on his film at least and it's this is him exploring why he is that way or trying to show us here here i am and i don't really understand it completely but i'm showing it to you i have seen some people and it's once again it's a lack of media literacy where they don't understand uh the difference between withholding and overdoing something where a lot of people going, Oh, I love Tilda Swinton as the expert. I wish the movie had been about her character. And I was like, no, but you don't realize if you had gotten that movie, you would have been getting another John wick movie who she is and the way she performs that role 
only works as that scene because she is so different from everything we've seen at that point that it is a shock to the system. If you had her from beginning to end, then she wouldn't stand out in the way that she does in that scene. And I think it's also, it's not so much that she would have been a John Wood character. I think they would just fall fallen into the same steps that we would have followed this character. It's just the difference is she lives a little bit more of a lavish uh, lifestyle compared to him. Well, we don't see him when he's on his off time. The only time we see him is towards the end. He's servicing like his, like, the woman that he loves coffee right she's still healing from the wounds it's supposed to be he might be retired or not but we're not really sure tilda swinton is caught off guard she's at a restaurant eating meals and, then well, and being she's like, she's talking as a way to distract him yeah and she's yeah. joking about how like oh she wished she would have had hagen with every meal after you know being so painstakingly about her like her body image but it's also like she talks about how she only did this work for money, which is like something that is at the end of the day, a horrible thing. Like you should not be like applauding this idea of being like, I want to know more about the girl boss who kills other yeah. people. That's the shallow, like, <laughs> Oh, I'm a feminist because I want a toxic female character to know. It's like, no, it's it, this, this feminist. And that like the expert, that character could have been played by a man. It is a gender neutral role. Like all of these are pretty much gender neutral roles in my opinion. Uh, and I think the way she plays the expert works so perfectly in juxtaposing against the brute. We never see the two of them on camera. We're told that they came to the killer's house together so that when we see them uh, individually, we understand the clash of these two tones I also think people aren't realizing this isn't a movie necessarily about characters, but more about archetypes. This is archetypal in the way a com. I mean, it's based on a graphic novel, uh, but this is, these are, it's a world that's stylized and is just on the edge of almost being like a comic book world, but not letting itself fall into the overindulgence that comic book movies do. Yeah. I think it's also like going back to the whole thing with the expert, the whole thing at the end with her is supposed to be, she's a liar that's her job yeah that's her job she talks about like she talks her way into places like and it's also it's intermixing between what the truth is and what the lie is she tells the killer what happened to your you know to your girlfriend i had nothing to do with that the brute did everything but it's clear like i just watched in horror but we know she did have something to do with it like she's a liar so she's lying she's when a, she says she, that yeah she's a knife on her next the last yeah. time we see her it's not as if but like, then like it's i liked how her approach is 180 from the brute the brute is just pure physical violence and yeah. so when you think about those two scenes the scene with the brute, there's a visceral nature to that scene. Well, even the way they were lit, like yeah. the brute his face is like shadowed, shadowed yeah, the time, and she's well lit and she's wearing like white, I think, or like light colors. Um, and then in his scene, there's barely any dialogue. It's almost like a silent film. Yeah, the expert scene, full to the brim, almost like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yes, and how much dialogue there is, and. That's what I loved about it and why I felt like it was very much almost like an anthology thing is each of these chapters is so self-contained and so brimming full with like details and specific things about the characters like the Hodges Dolores sequence like that secretary of Dolores in another movie would have been like a throwaway character 
but she is absolutely like riveting. I did like that character at the end. Like this the, is one of the instances that I'm going to like the film after we discussed it. Much like how uh, the opposite of Barbie, where I hated it yeah. more the more I talked about it. Um, I really like Dolores because she like she's a full three dimensional character. She's just like you know, she bet she's like I'm not gonna beg, and then she's like you know what I am begging, and that's when he breaks the rule of empathy towards her and how she tries to struggle to leave but then realizes well i'm just con- i'm stuck he's the like, kind of guy that kills she, all the witnesses the is, like she's like and i've i've seen his work so i shouldn't be surprised and the coding because it's like she has nothing on the computers she has it in this rolodex that's locked in her house so she's like what's the number it's he's like two then go to t and like yep. she has a specific coding for like it to be well, and so you realize like she wasn't just the Hodge's secretary. She was a co-partner with him in whatever this criminal venture he had going on. Yeah. Like she knew like who got paid what, like, and like there's, and that's what I love is every character feels so multidimensional, but Fincher refuses to go too deep with them. But that's what makes it so satisfying to me is, Oh, there's a whole story you could tell about that character, but it's not going to be here. So you as the viewer, when you're done, you can walk away from the movie and you can pick a character in your head and you can spend a long time just ruminating and th- like the Hodges character, the guy, he looks so bold and specific. He's this black man, shock of white hair. Uh, the way he speaks, like his enunciation is so precise. Yeah. Uh I'll say the death scene in that office is one of the most visceral death scenes I've seen in a long time. Yet it still wasn't graphic. It was it just did, the method. You felt the tension of it. And like you felt like the, the pain of it. Yeah, it's it's one in where Fincher goes a little bit to the side compared to other action films. So a lot of action films is we see people get beat up, they get up again, they keep fighting. And this is something that I feel like we we remarked on stuff like when we watched like Boardwalk Empire when when the violence occurred you, you feel it you felt it because of the noise the groin of it like the well, and, wetness of and it. also like the the way people don't die fast when you unless you're cutting someone's head off or something like that they're gonna take a while to die yeah a lot of times if you shoot someone in the chest, they're going to drown in their own blood. Yeah. And that's a long, gruesome process. And that's why, like, I don't care for the John Wick movies because what I saw in the first movie was the deaths were so quick, you didn't feel them. And the same thing with the Nobody movie. When people die, it would just, it didn't feel like there was a weight to that. And I get the tone that they're going for in those movies is more of a comic tone, but I just don't, find that very interesting i find it more interesting like fincher here is you linger with the deaths you're there with them when people get stabbed you're watching the object go through them and you're having to like see them pull it out and you're seeing what a like nasty horrible process this all is i think it's a film that doesn't allow for much interpretation which is necessary and it's it's a film that doesn't even allow you to watch the killer in his off time like we don't watch him like if he falls asleep he's falling asleep while watching someone and then i would argue that it is there's a lot of interpretation there it's a film that tricks you into thinking it's all surface level but the more i've thought about it 
and the more I've talked about it, the more I'm like, no, there's a, I feel like there's a lot going on here about the killer being a person who is so set on this one track. Like he can't just get off the track. He has to go the whole way. And what does that mean? Well, we're looking at what it means. He's killing all these other people. So the idea would be, yeah, at some point, like somebody almost did kill him. He just happened to not be at his house when it happened. I mean, it's, it's a film that I feel like it's telling you what it is within the first 15 to 20 minutes. And then it's exploring those ideas. Yeah. Because he talks about like, Hey, if you uh, or like, you cannot do this job if you don't like boredom, which is the part of like, the silence of the film right the way of making us wait for certain things and then also there's a whole thing of him being like oh shooting people from a distance is so boring it's like i long for intimacy like a, a certain types of death and he ends up doing those deaths afterwards and then i think as we we as the audience see it and i remember remarking like oh wow i wonder what it must be like to be an assassin who kills from a distance like i must be pretty easy to separate yourself from like who you're killing because you're not up close and i think that's true because when he's up close killing people i'm like yeah it's a lot harder to look away yeah you're hearing it a lot more when you're shooting someone from one building who's in another building you don't really hear it i think what's interesting is with that opening assassination sequence when his shot does fire fincher jump cuts to inside the other building yeah, but only for a brief moment, long enough for us to see the bullet enter, hear the see the glass shattering, and then we're back to the killer in the other building. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that at no point in the film is there a twisty turny by going like, yeah, you know, you were meant to miss the shot, and like we were trying to get rid of you for so long, or blah blah blah, wanted you dead, in order to make it seem like oh his mistake wasn't a mistake after all. It's just no, he fucked up. Well, and then I saw some people complaining about uh, Arliss Howard's character, and they felt that that sequence just went on and on. They didn't understand the point. But for me, it's he's coming to the person that started this specific job who doesn't want to take responsibility for what they ordered after the hit messed up. Yeah. In the same way that Tilda Swinton doesn't want to take responsibility for her role in what happened to Magdala. Whenever these people are confronted with the consequences of their actions – they don't ever want to accept responsibility for it. But in there, I think there's something about if you are willing to be so bold as to do those things, the least you can do is accept responsibility for it. Uh, and I also think it's interesting that the way he leaves Arliss Howard's character at the end, it subverts your expectations from the whole movie. And there's a lot of questions left remaining there like why did he choose to do that and part of me thinks he saw this guy was not like these other people he's not like Hodges he's not like the expert he's not like the brood this is someone who was out of their depth yeah and he betrays his own rules at the end of the movie he betrays his own rules throughout the whole film yeah but still lives at the end and so the question I think is did he win was there anything to win? Did anything that he did actually matter? And you might be going, well, that sounds like a terrible movie. But I think those are like good questions to ask is when you get to the end, will what you have done matters? Did you do more harm than good? Did the, the violence that you participated in in your life 
whether passively or actively do harm to the world in a greater way or did it did you benefit from that yeah like there's all these questions that are embedded there but the film is so restrained and not being so on the nose about it and i think because we live in this age of hollywood movies that make their themes so cloyingly explicit that it's nice to watch a movie that is presented straightforward but upon sitting with it you start to realize there's more going on than just the plot that happened that this isn't about the plot this is a character study of this person and why they do what they do kind of thing once again same thing with like wes anderson it might not be your taste it's a very stylized film and stylized films you either like or you don't for me uh, everything everywhere all at once i appreciated it for what it was but it was not one of my favorite movies of 2021 i think is when it came out or was it last year 2022 one of those years uh i think it was the it was the last oscars i don't know but yeah that was a movie where i liked the daniels uh and i liked their films and i wouldn't say i disliked everywhere everything all at once i just was like this movie didn't click for me yeah uh, I still think it should exist. And that's the weird thing is I think Fitcher, because he has this association with a certain type of movie guy, you see yeah. these reactions online and it's like, I, I just don't think that's giving him a fair shake. Uh, I think you cannot like his work, but I think he is a an extremely talented director. Like he knows where to point the camera. He knows what kind of coloring he wants. He knows exactly the way it has to be and there's a lot of directors that mimic his style and completely fail because it's something i can't even like describe there's just something about his work about the color the tone the lighting that you just you can feel it when you watch his movies Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. Make sure to check our show notes out for links to relevant things like our Patreon, uh, our Instagram, and as well as our website, popcult.blog, where you can see lots of new reviews that go up all week long. Make sure that you subscribe wherever it is you listen to this podcast so that you'll be notified when new episodes come up. If you do visit popcult.blog right now, you're going to find we're in the middle of a series about the French director Agnes Varda which we'll be continuing that this week. And then at the end of November, we'll be doing a short five film series, kind of calling it This is America, Films About America. And it's a collection of very eclectic films that look at kind of the dark side of the United States from a couple different perspectives. If you enjoy what we do on the podcast, if you enjoy what we do on the website, we would encourage you to support us on Patreon. The link is in the show notes for that. If you do uh, support us there, uh, there are lots of rewards that you can get depending on what level you contribute at. We want to thank our current patrons, uh, Morphine, who donates at the sneak preview level, and Becca and Matt, who donate at the writer's room level. If you donate at the writer's room level or higher, you'll get to pick a movie once a month for us to watch and review. You can even add your own thoughts to that review if you want. No matter what level of the Patreon you subscribe to, you get access to exclusive uh, patron-only podcasts. Currently, we're doing a series called Screenplay, where Ariana and I are doing a sort of GM-less, improvisational tabletop roleplay using a couple little systems and random tables, and we have got two episodes of that up. It was a lot of fun to play and record, and I hope that you have fun listening to them. 
Well, until next time, you keep listening and we'll keep watching. Thank you.